in my family, we had the tradition when I was a kid that the night before Christmas, and sometimes the morning of, depending upon where we, we were, my dad would always sit down with us and, and with my, my mom and, and my sister and me. We would all sit down, and Dad would read us the Christmas story. And he would go to the familiar passage that most of us, whether you've been in church for very long or whether you've never attended church, you're probably familiar with at least some of the, the storyline behind uh, the, the Scripture from Luke chapter 2. And Dad would always turn there, and, and he would always read us the Christmas story. If you got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And I want to read to you this morning the story that many of us are familiar with, that many of us probably to an extent having watched Charlie Brown Christmas, in the words of Linus, could probably quote part of this passage at least. I'll be reading from the version known as the Holman Christian Standard, your version may be a little bit different, and that's okay. We've put the verses as best we can up on the screen behind me. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them at the inn. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the field and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. So there's part of the story. Then turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. To the left, just a couple of books and a few chapters. You'll find Matthew chapter 2. And we find the... <clears throat> Next significant events in the Nativity story. Chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them, 
where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. You know, there are things, I believe this story reminds us, that there are things that become so familiar to us that they don't produce the same effect that maybe they once did. Maybe this past week you walked outside and it was dark and it maybe was a clear night and you sort of looked at the sky and then looked back down and it didn't strike you the way that maybe it once did. Maybe there was a time in your life when you would look up at the stars and you would just stand there and look and gaze for, for seemingly minutes or maybe hours on end and you just couldn't get enough of, that is incredible. Billions of stars, billions of miles away, and yet we can see them. We see them in their arrangement. And you look at the moon and, and, and how its phases come and go, and maybe you once were just amazed by those sorts of things. And now it's just no big deal. Or maybe this morning, or maybe a morning this week, you got up and you were able to be up as the sun came up. And you noticed the sunrise, and then you sort of looked away. And maybe it didn't strike you the way that it once did. It just doesn't produce the same effect. There are things like that in life that once amazed us, once produced some effect, once changed us a little bit, caused us to think, but now maybe don't have that effect. And the same is true of, of things like our children. I have three of my own, and there are times when I will stop and just look at them, uh, particularly while they're asleep. Kids are great when they're sleeping. <clears throat> Isn't that the truth? And I'll just think, what a miracle from God. And then there are other times when you just say, what a miracle from God. You know what I mean? And, and so kids have that. they just the same words, just have a different effect. And, and yet you look and you, you touch their hands and you, you listen to their laughter. And you listen to their voice. And it's just amazing. But oftentimes, we just sort of let that slide. It doesn't produce the same effect that it once did. And I think, unfortunately, we can get so familiar with things, they don't produce an effect. You know, the truth is, there's some things that really don't matter if they produce an effect. We joke around about being sports fans and so on, and we cheer for our teams, and we get excited. But really... Each one of us, to the person, would admit it doesn't really matter if I get excited or don't get excited. It doesn't matter. It's not going to change eternity. It's not going to change my life. It may make me have a little bit of a bad day if they lose here and there. But really, if I don't get excited, it's not going to matter. If it produces an effect, big deal. The story of Jesus is different because he always has an effect. And I'm afraid that often we become so familiar with the story of Jesus that it fails to have the necessary effect on us. That Jesus' effect is sort of gone. 
But we failed to see the effect that he had when he came. And so what I'd like to do this morning is move back through the story. And this time, I'd like you to join me in paying attention to some of the details. And maybe you're a person who likes to take notes, and maybe you would say, you know, I don't believe it's blasphemous, so I'll maybe make a note or two in my Bible of of something that just sort of hits me. My goal this morning is to help us to see Jesus again, maybe for the very first time. Maybe to see Him like we once did. And to understand that the details of this story matter, and it's not just something that we just read over and become tradition about. I want us to pay attention to the details. It's not just a kid's story. It's not just a nativity scene that you place in your front yard or on the mantle. This is the story of God entering the world for reasons I still cannot explain. I can tell you what He did, but why He did it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Why on earth the God of the universe, the perfect and holy righteous God, would enter the world of sinners to save us and die in our place, I can tell you what He did. And I can sort of make some sense of that to an extent. But the story of God entering the world needs to produce an effect far beyond what we can really explain. And so I hope that you'll look with me at the details. Look again in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And let's look again at that census and decree and the events surrounding the the birth of Jesus. In those days, it says in verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, it's interesting that if you know anything about Caesar Augustus, he established what was known as the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome. He was the self-proclaimed prince of peace. Now, interestingly enough, the true prince of peace was brought into the world by a decree, seemingly routine, by the self-proclaimed prince of peace. It's interesting that no matter how many people can set themselves up against God, give themselves titles of power and influence, that God is still in control. He still trumps any human effort whatsoever. Caesar Augustus probably thought, I am the greatest ruler. Let's bring all the people to count them, to see how many folks I have, to register all of them, tax them once more. And so he orders this, and it's through this very thing that God will bring about the fulfillment of prophecy that the Messiah, his only son, will be born in Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus probably thought he was in charge. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Now, I have to admit to you that if you pay attention to the details of this story, we just think, yeah, just Mary was engaged to him and she was pregnant. She was a teenager, understand this. I cannot follow necessarily God's logic in all of this, A teenager who was not yet married, betrothed and pledged to be married, but not yet married, was the person that God selected through which he would birth his own son, the Savior of the world. And so here they are, taking a trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is about 75 miles. She most likely riding a donkey or potentially even walking. They were not rich people. They may not have owned an animal. They ever traveled with a pregnant woman? I have. Never walking, 
Never on a donkey. Cannot imagine that. We have no idea how pregnant she was, but regardless, things get a little messed up when ladies are pregnant, and they get warm or cold at interesting times, and they crave certain things. You can imagine that the trip was not just this angelic voyage from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They were human. And yet these are the circumstances that God has chosen. A long journey, 75 miles, a typical day's journey in the Bible for somebody walking at a regular pace without a pregnant woman on a donkey would have been about 20 miles they could travel in one day. Now that puts us to shame. Some of us don't travel 20 miles on foot in a year, okay? They did it in one day. I have to admit I'm with you on that, all right? But, so you figure that they were probably traveling 10 or less miles a day, 75 miles, you do the math. It's about a week that it takes them. They have no money. They have no place to stay even once they get to Bethlehem. Imagine traveling on the road. They are simply staying wherever they can. The story takes on a little different form when you begin to think about it in those terms. Don't miss the details. And so Mary, who was engaged but not yet married, a teenager who is pregnant, here she goes, probably scorned by her family, because how crazy is it that she says, I am pregnant, can no longer hide it. Everybody's thinking, well, yes, you are. Number one, it would have been bad enough if Joseph was the father, but Mary claims that the father is not visible, that it is, in fact, God himself who has implanted this child in her right. And she is scorned probably by her family. Joseph, who is just sort of along for the ride, has an angel appear to him in a vision and tells him, look, this is the real deal, go ahead. He never had that necessarily before. And all of a sudden, here they are, traveling, all alone, probably don't know one another very well. And they wind up in Bethlehem. While they were there, verse 6 says, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them at the end. Again, I, I have to admit that from this passage, that, that God's plan does not often line up with human reasoning. Some of you would say, listen, I can tell you all about that. I can tell you all about the fact that I've done my best to follow God, and yet the path that He has chosen for my life doesn't line up with anything that I can make sense of. And I just want to say, you're right. That may or may not be comforting to you, but I want you to know that God's plan does not often line up with human reasoning. He does not answer to us. He is the sovereign God of the universe who does what He wants to do, but we have to know and trust that He is Good. The Bible over and over says He is good and He is loving. You may find yourself right now in a situation that you don't understand. And you don't know why God has chosen this. You don't know why the circumstances have aligned themselves to bring about this certain thing in your life. And you just say, God, it doesn't make sense. If the God of the universe chose a, an unwed teenager to bring forth His Son in either some sort of stable or a cage, surrounded by animals, in a, in a minuscule, obscure town outside of Jerusalem, understand that our circumstances may only make sense to Him, and we must trust Him to get us through all of that. Mary and Joseph, on their own, not completely understanding, had to trust that God knew what He was doing. That's how He chose to bring His Son into the world. You wonder what Mary was thinking through all of this. You wonder if at certain times, though we paint the picture of Mary as being superhuman, she was not. There's nothing divine about her whatsoever. She was just one of us. 
She was not anything special, the Bible says. She just simply had the favor of God on her life, and that's who God chose. You wonder if Mary at certain times just reflected and thought certain things. Max Lucado has written a great book called God Came Near. And if you're looking for a book to read, it's a quick read about Jesus and just what he meant to the world and sort of understanding him as he was meant to be seen, I'd encourage you to pick this one up. And in this book, Max Lucado lists some questions for Mary. These are kind of interesting. Questions for Mary about Jesus. What was it like watching him pray? How did he respond when he saw other kids giggling during the service at the synagogue? When he saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? Think about it. When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? How did he act at funerals? Did, did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever try to count the stars with him and succeed? Did he ever come home with a black eye? How did he act when he got his first haircut? Did he have any friends by the name of Judas? How about that? <clears throat> did he do well in school? Did you ever scold him? Did he ever have to, have to ask a question about Scripture? What do you think he thought when he saw a prostitute offering to the highest bidder the body that he made? Did he ever get angry when someone was dishonest with him? Did you ever catch him pensively looking at his, uh, at his flesh on his own arm while holding a clot of dirt that he made it from? Did he ever wake up afraid? Who was his best friend? When someone referred to Satan, how did he act? Did you ever accidentally call him father? What did he and his cousin John talk about his kids? Did his other brothers and sisters understand what was happening? And did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? What would Mary have been thinking? Well, when you think about it from that perspective, it, it has a different effect on you because you realize how the humans involved in the story were affected. Luke chapter 2 then records the announcement to the shepherds. Look with me in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. This is sort of like they were in the suburbs of Bethlehem kind of like living as we do here in the suburbs of Murray. Out here in Elm Grove, just the suburbs of the big city, these guys were out there, Bethlehem, tiny village, five miles outside of the big city. And here they are outside of the tiny village, which is outside of the big city. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and probably the most obvious statement ever in the Bible, and they were terrified. Now, picture this. You're here at Elm Grove. Maybe you live out here. You're walking out in the field one night, and all of a sudden an angel shows up to you. It is not a routine occurrence, nor was it for these shepherds. Now, I have to admit that when I think about this particular angel, it may have been the angel Gabriel who announced to Mary that Jesus would be born. It may have been him. And I wonder when the birth of Jesus took place and the angels celebrate God's saving plan for the world, and Gabriel and God the Fathers there in heaven sort of look at one another, and, and Gabriel maybe says to him, you know, we need to tell some people what just happened. We need to send out some birth announcements. We need to take some pictures and send out the cards. And they look at one another, and, and with that look, Gabriel, knowing God the Father, he probably says, yeah, I know who you want to go to. Well, go to the shepherds, don't you? That's who you came for. That's who you're sending Jesus for. You want to, you want to go to those shepherds, and 
Gabriel maybe has this angel comes and stands before them. Then he says in verse 10, But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then look at the titles. Today, a Savior, who is Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. The Lord was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts, just like they couldn't wait, with the angel praising God like they have for all eternity and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people He favors. Imagine the scene there with the shepherds. But God came in the form of a baby. And He came to people just like them. He didn't come in splendor and robed in all of this stuff. He came born in a manger. So the announcement went first to those people. And then over in Matthew chapter 1, if you flip back there, holding your place there in Luke chapter 2, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2 rather, we see that the announcement not only goes to the shepherds, but also comes to those who are a little bit more wealthy and more powerful. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Again, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly from in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They show up on the scene, these guys who are extremely wise. Now, we think of them as, the, you know, we three kings. There may or may not have been three of them. They brought three gifts, so that's where the tradition comes down. And in fact, they were probably not alone. These guys were very wealthy. They probably traveled in a big caravan. They had a posse with them. It was not just these three guys on some camels, and they wandered around. They came with an entourage, and they show up in Jerusalem asking over and over and over again, where is this, this one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? So they sort of announced to the, to the people there in Jerusalem, he's been born. We have studied him. We know He was coming, and He has been born. We see in these two scenarios, there are two characters that I want you to look at. One is a group of people. The other is a singular person. And if you can understand for just a second the contrast between their characters and who they are, then it will lead us then to looking at their contrasting responses. In Luke chapter 2, the announcement is given to shepherds. Shepherds were the lowest class of society back then. They're not the people you're going to invite to the parties. They're not the folks that you're going to want to hang out with. In fact, most of them, when agriculture became sort of the king, they were shoved off and viewed as less than, than first-class citizens. Oftentimes it was relegated to a younger son or a hired hand or even a slave to raise the sheep. And because they could not keep the laws of Sabbath, because they had to work seven days a week, they were continuously, in the eyes of the Pharisees, in violation of the religious laws, and as a result were always ceremonially unclean, which for a Jewish person was the worst thing you could be. These guys were perpetually that. They're not exactly the type of people that you'd expect to receive the most significant announcement in human history. And then you have Herod. Herod the Great, he was called. His father was appointed by Julius Caesar to be the governor of Judea. And so as a result, the son, Herod the Great, that we pick up here in the story in Matthew chapter 2, was then appointed by Mark Antony to be uh, in charge and be known as the king of the Jews. He ruled over the area where the Jews lived. And so you can imagine when 
These wise men show up saying, where's the king of the Jews? Herod says, hey, listen, I'm right here. That's my title. You see it. It's on my desk. It says, Herod, king of the Jews. I wear it on my name tag. I've got the embroidered shirt. I've got it all. Herod waving to them saying, hold on just a second. That's me. And so Herod was a guy who loved his power. He was a man who was very cruel, as a matter of fact. In fact, he murdered or had murdered his own wife and two of his own sons when they posed a threat to him. And so you see those characters, and I think it will make sense then, as we look briefly this morning, at their contrasting responses. The contrasting responses of the shepherds, of Herod, and then of some of the others. In a sense, we have a yes, no, and maybe scenario. When I was in second grade, a few years ago, I won't tell you the year because for some of you will think, they're the young people, good grief. They had second grade then? For others, you'll think, you have no idea. And so, anyway, a few years ago, I was in second grade. And there was a particular girl, her name was Tanya. And Tanya was at that time, to a seven-year-old kid, the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Anybody in second grade have one of those crushes? Nobody's going to admit it but me. Come on. It helped me out. Anyway, Tanya was, she was, she was just beautiful. And, and I think it, just a little bit, she, she sort of was intrigued by me as well, probably because I just couldn't take my eyes off of her. She just thought I was strange. But anyway... I remember passing notes back and forth to Tanya. You ever do this when you were in elementary school? And it would be, do you like me? Check yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> and, you know, for the longest time, I, I either got the no uh, or I just didn't get it back altogether. And I'll never forget when the note gets passed back to me toward the end of second grade and the box that's checked is Yes. I mean, you talk about the angels showing up to the shepherds. Listen, they were singing that day, too. And, and I take that note home, and I mean, it's like, you know, it's like gold. You know, I mean, you just, you know. And I had it in the back pocket of a pair of jeans, and Mom washed those jeans. And, you know, as, as elated as I was to get the yes, I mean, I was crushed when, when the note was gone. Because I had no proof whatsoever that Tanya said yes, that she liked me, you know. And, and so we have this scenario in, in these responses, sort of this yes, no, and maybe. These contrasting responses to Jesus. And I want to roll through these quickly and then get to the point of asking ourselves what our own response will be. Look at Luke chapter 2 again. After the announcement had been made to the shepherds, verse 15, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off. Don't miss the details. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said. Look at verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. The response of the shepherds was praise. The response of the shepherds was adoration and devotion. They left behind where they were. They ran to where Jesus was. We don't have any, any idea. Did they get somebody else to watch the sheep? Did they leave a couple behind? We don't know. All they said was, we've got to get to Jesus no matter what. And when they found Him, they bowed down, they worshipped Him. Then they returned to their normal lives doing the same 
thing. Devotion to the Lord was their response. They received the announcement. These lowest citizens realized this is the Savior that's come for us. He deserves our worship. We'll give Him just that. That's their response. Then you have the response of Herod. Matthew chapter 2, the wise men show up in verses 1 and 2 asking, where is this king of the Jews? And in verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem was upset because they know when Herod gets upset, people's heads are going to fall off. That's the way he was. Herod was deeply disturbed. Then look at verse 7. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star had appeared. And here he, here he gets into his manipulation. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. That's really what I'd like to do. And then in verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Herod's response was one of contempt. His response was the exact opposite of the shepherds and even the response of the wise men who praised and worshipped Jesus and gave him their devotion. His response was contempt. Why? Because Jesus threatened him. His title as king of the Jews would be erased by this new and promised king of the Jews. His power was going to be usurped by a baby. And Herod flew into a rage and did his best to destroy this promised king, this one who said he would take over. There's one other response that I don't want you to miss. In Matthew chapter 2, again in verse 4, Herod, it says, he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people. The very people who knew most about the promises found in the Old Testament of where and who and what the Messiah would be all about. Sort of half-heartedly say, yeah, he's going to be born in Jerusalem, because the Scripture says that's what's going to happen. They knew at that particular moment that the wise men had come saying, look, the king has been born, the Messiah has come. But their response, along with that of countless others, was one of apathy or maybe just disbelief. One of apathy or disbelief. These are the people that they may know all the facts, and there are many of us here today just like that, but they don't believe. They may understand, yeah, okay, I get that. I see the story and all of that, and yet they do not believe. They give mere lip service to God, saying, yeah, I love God, I'll be there at church and so on, or, or I'll think about Him from time to time, especially when things get bad, but He does not have their devotion. The sad fact is that the maybe group, we find the yes group in the shepherds, the no group in Herod, and we find the yet the maybe group in, in the, the scribes and those teachers of the law, those chief priests. The maybe group, understand if you find yourself today riding the fence just a little bit, saying, well, you know, I kind of like this about God, but I'm not sure I'm going to throw all of me toward Him. Understand where the maybe group wound up. That group of Pharisees, that group of scribes, that group of high priests eventually became threatened in their own right by Jesus. And they were the ones 
who did not turn to the yes side eventually, just, well, maybe I'll be convinced. Because when the true Jesus was known, they went to the other side, to the no good. They were the ones who plotted to kill him. They were the ones who, who chanted, crucify him. They were the ones. And so maybe you find yourself today sort of, well, I'm not real sure. Understand this. The Bible allows and God allows little, if any, room for sort of that riding the fence. He says, make a choice. Yes, no. What's it going to be? We see in these responses that there's that yes group of praise and devotion to the Lord. Both at the moment of salvation and in daily living, there's that group of contempt. No, I don't want anybody in charge of my life but me. And then there's that maybe group that's on a slippery slope toward the no group. So which will it be for you? Will you be one of the shepherds, wise men, who say, I know and I believe, and as a result of that, I will give my entire life, every detail, over to the Lord? Or you like Herod, resistant, resistant, understanding the promises, but resistant to the Lord. Or maybe you're like the countless others who are sort of apathetic. Maybe. Maybe in disbelief. So what will it be? Yes, no. Maybe. The implications of this story, the birth of Jesus, I don't believe can be overstated. He came for the lowliest of us. There's some today that are in that position. And though on the outside you may have it all together, on the inside you realize just how lowly you really are. And your life is crumbling. And you keep up a pretty good front, you smile at the right times, and you shake the hands, and you do all the right things. And yet, if anybody could see your heart, if anybody could know your thoughts, they'd realize Jesus came for the lowliest of us. For those who may not find a place in society, we find a place with Him. For those who are discouraged, for those who are lacking hope, for those who feel unloved and unworthy, just like those shepherds, and I encourage you to take your life to Him. Your imperfections and all. Jesus says, just come exactly as you are. Those shepherds left where they were. They were still shepherds. They were still viewed by society as the same way, but they received salvation that day because they simply came to Jesus. Another implication is this, that there is room for only one king on the throne of your life. Well, Herod found that out. Who was going to be king of the Jews? In Herod's mind, it wasn't going to be this Jesus who was just born. It was going to be him. Who is it that's on the throne of your life? If you're honest with yourself and you evaluate, does Jesus have full control? Have you yielded yourself to Him in every area? There's only room for one king. Somebody's going to wear that crown. It's either going to be you or it's Him. There's no trade-off. Another implication is that we don't need to have all the answers. In fact, we'll never have all the answers. God is infinite, which means He's inexhaustible. We'll never know everything about God. We'll never know all there is to know. And some of us today are so bent, I've got to know every single thing. Convince me, convince me, convince me. The only thing that convince you, that can convince you, is the power of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that can turn your mind toward, yes, I believe, is God Himself. The shepherds, they were uneducated. Many of them probably illiterate. They didn't know all the answers, but they knew that Jesus was real. They believed who He was, and they ran to Him. The wise men came from a completely different country. 
They didn't grow up in, in the Jewish kingdom there. They didn't know all there was to know about the Messiah, but they simply believed. Also, we need to realize out of this story that Jesus came as one of us. Though He was fully God, He was also completely human. He experienced and went through all that we go through. He feels our pain. And because He was one of us, He is the only one who can provide the sacrifice for our sins. And God is also near. Some of us have this idea that God is so far off that I can't ever get to Him. The truth is we are the ones who create the distance. Jesus is the one who built the bridge. He is near. And if He lived among us at one time as a real human person, then He can and He will enter your life and your situation today. And so what's your response to Jesus? He was announced as both Savior and Lord. You see that in your life. Is your response one of praise and devotion? Or is Jesus a threat to the control of your life? You on the fence? Maybe you're getting into, getting into the holiday spirit. and We see that all around. And people are more friendly this time of year. And we like Jesus laying there in the manger and the fact that the, the words of the song say He never even cried. He was a baby. He cried. It's just the way it was. We like Jesus in the manger. He's safe there. People are excited about Christmas. and Isn't that neat, the little nativity scene? But when Jesus grew up, He was less safe. Because He was the one who claimed to be God. The only way to get to God and the only sacrifice for our sins, those folks who probably said, hey, that neat little baby laying in the manger one day said, crucify him. And so sitting on the fence is a dangerous place to be. And so maybe today is the day you ask him, maybe into your life for the very first time. Or maybe today is the day that you commit to daily devotion to him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that, the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, the mind has not even imagined what God has planned for those who love Him. Love then is an action, devotion toward Him. So maybe today, and each day following, you'd see Jesus for who He really is, the one who came near to us, the one who built the bridge to heaven, the one who was declared as Lord, as in charge. And maybe you'd say to Him both today, tomorrow, and the following few days, and get in the habit of doing it. Lord, You are in charge. You are my King. You have my devotion and praise. Maybe you'd start each day. Maybe you'd end each day. And in the middle of each day, you'd spend your time saying, Lord, I lean into You. You have my devotion. I want to respond just like those shepherds did. I pray that you not sit on the fence. So as we close this morning, evaluate what will your decision be? What will your response be toward Jesus? Will it be one of praise? Or will it be one of contempt because He threatens you? The Bible says those who will love Him with all they are experience things that we have not yet imagined. The Bible says peace that passes all understanding. The security of knowing you have eternal salvation. And life, Jesus said, in abundance here on earth. Let's bow. What's your response? Maybe in this moment, you realize that the story of Jesus is not just a kid's story, but it calls for a response from us. That we will either see Him as Savior and Lord, or as just a threat to our own control of our lives. 
Bible says those who will place their faith in God, please Him and receive His blessings. Maybe today, for the very first time, you'd invite the Lord into your life in that way. There is but one way to heaven, Jesus says, and that's through Him, through believing that He is the Son of God and that He died for your sins and was raised again to give you eternal life. Will you place your faith in Him this morning? Maybe you're a person who says, you know, I've already done that and I'm confident that I, that I am saved. Well, I've been riding that fence. And I realize what a slippery slope that is. And I want my response this morning to be yes, to be praise, to be devotion. Maybe in this moment you just confess that to the Lord. You make that commitment to Him. And then tomorrow you do the same thing. Each and every day of your life, you'd wake up brand new with devotion to the Lord. Heavenly Father, in this moment, show us who you are. Jesus, thank you for coming to earth as one of us. To be able to stretch out your hand to us and to God the Father and pull us up to where he is through your sacrifice on the cross and your forgiveness of sin. So, Lord, for those who are down and out this morning, those who find themselves as shepherds with seemingly nothing to offer, thank you that that's right where you want us. And if we come to you empty-handed, Lord, that you return to us grace and peace and love and things beyond what our imaginations can conceive. And may we commit to you to respond to you with praise and adoration. Even when things don't make sense, that we trust the plan of God for our lives. We thank you. That Christmas means so much more than a nativity scene or a few presents under the tree, that it is the very incarnation, God coming in human flesh to save us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.